this is Jason, and welcome to Stand By for Paradise. As I climbed out of the taxi, the clouds were thickening all around us. Unlike a storm in Colorado that comes evidently and purposefully from one direction, this inescapable deluge was boiling up from every molecule of water in the heavy air. The sky was getting uniformly darker everywhere we looked. None of the locals seemed concerned, but there was a slight urgency to get us hustled into the terminal and out of their lives, lest they should be caught running across the pavement in sandals with our suitcases in hand. I shouldered my backpack and looked up to see the tail of an Airbus A320 towering over the narrow terminal building. There is a certain charm to the glitz and glamour of big international airports with their endless shopping malls masquerading as terminals. Still, nothing matches the sense of adventure that builds when your airplane is taller than the terminal it is parked against. The particular airport in question today was the low-slung, solitary terminal in Langkawi, Malaysia. The plane looming on the other side of the building stood ready to take us back to the cosmopolitan hubbub of Kuala Lumpur, but the towering buildings and Blade Runner night lights of the megacity we were going to seemed awfully distant from the swaying palms and darting motorcycles of rural Malaysia. That glossy red and white whale on the tarmac looked slightly out of place set among the less formal communities we had been driving through. This trip was the first time I had seen the comfortable provincial side of the Muslim world. For me, with my own small town roots, it was strange to see the mixture of roadside mechanics shops and farm supply stores and mosques and gender-separated hotels. The former seemed so familiar, the latter utterly foreign. The brooding storm was blasted off our backs in the shock of cold, sterile air conditioning as soon as we hit the terminal doors. My friend Devin and I needed to grab power for our laptops, and that meant finding food as well. It seemed silly to snack again so soon after breakfast, especially since our flight was not a long one down the sultry coast to KL. Still, you have to pay table rent everywhere you go when you are working from the road, which leads to a kind of grazing lifestyle of little pastries and lots and lots of coffee to buy your tiny space to work from. Annoyingly, the only place that looked promising was a Starbucks. There is always something a little strange about posting up in the most American of coffee shops when you are out in a world full of amazing coffee and wonderful local places to dive into. It was any port in a storm though, and in this little airport on the side of the Andaman Sea, the green and white shop from Seattle was the only place that had tables and outlets. As we approached security, I looked at the half wall that separated the two halves of the large open terminal hall. The anointed on one side and the great unwashed on the other. Everywhere I have traveled I have seen these walls that went up after the World Trade Center towers came down, splitting so many buildings built for a different age of travel. In Punta Arenas, Chile, far off to the south in another hemisphere, this division between the old world and the new took on a particularly comical manifestation. Almost as far south on the globe as commercial airports can be found, the troubles arising on or above the belt line of the planet seemed far off indeed. Still, they had put up a minimum effort in splitting the terminal building in half with an obviously temporary wall to meet new security regulations. The wall divided the entire terminal building, except for the bar. 
sitting at one end of that short concourse was a lonely airport bar at the bottom of the world. It had been built strategically to serve all customers, and rather than make one for airside and one for landside clientele, they had simply put it in the middle, and now the security wall ran right up to the heavy wooden bar itself. On the bar top between two stools, there was a sheet of plexiglass to finish the job, but the space for the bartenders remained one fluid channel between both worlds, and the bartenders slung drinks on both sides. I wondered what the TSA would think of such an arrangement. Back here in Langkawi, airport security fell under the same relaxing spell that passport control had. Getting off our boat from Thailand that morning, the young girls in army uniforms and hijabs had only casually glanced at our passports before waving us toward the metal detector. The red lights on the familiar gray archway were almost constantly on, and the blaring siren that normally would have brought an instant halt to proceedings at any other border check was going off non-stop. A guard stood on the other side of the detector, but all he was doing was waving his hand in a circle the way traffic cops do to tell you it's your turn to hurry along. As we rounded the corner into the departure lounge, I looked up from reading emails on my phone to note absentmindedly that a thick fog must have rolled in. It would have been sudden, as we weren't in the terminal that long, but now you couldn't even see the tail fin of our plane clearly. Something in my mind told me to look again at the plane. This was no fog that had rolled in. The gray curtain pulled across the world was the heaviest rain I had ever seen. I stopped dead in my tracks and stared out the window. An airliner is a big machine, but rain so heavy you couldn't see the other end of your plane was something I had never even imagined. Devin and I looked at each other and then at the departure board. Every flight heading out was now delayed or canceled. Departure lounges everywhere on Earth are designed down to the same basic standard. You take out all humanity and comfort and put back just enough chairs so most of the people who are soon to be leaving have somewhere to sit or pile their bags. A skeptical mind might think they were made this way to make cramped airplane seats more comfortable by comparison. This lounge in particular was set up like a theater for the travel disaster that was about to unfold. Rather than the maze-like arrangement of chairs in many airport gate areas, in Langkawi, all the chairs faced the windows in rows like theater seats. Unfortunate gate workers typed feverishly behind the podiums, the enormous and immobile jets looming behind them through the glass wall of the terminal. There were only a handful of gates, but each of them had four more flights booked out before the end of the day. As we looked out at the gray wall of rain, a sneaking suspicion began worming its way up through my consciousness. I was beginning to feel like this would be a very long day. The rain didn't stop. It seemed impossible this much water could be held in the whole sky, let alone the tiny part above the airfield that mattered. As the afternoon stretched on, more and more people came filtering through security. Apparently, no one had looked up their flight status. There were now full plane loads of people in front of each gate. Then there were two planes worth. Then three. As steady as the pounding rain outside, a stream of angry passengers were taking their turns screaming at the gate agents. Two gates down, 
a distraught man had to be tackled against the podium and was hauled away screaming. Soon there were hundreds of people in the departure lounge. The lone set of bathrooms reserved for occasional service as people darted to their flights was being worked overtime and the stress was starting to show. A country full of amazing food and coffee and tatarik was waiting just beyond the 10-foot glass walls around the security line. But on our side, there was only a small alcove with a vending machine giving out pre-packaged ramen and noodle cups. We had hours to get to know the people around us, but we didn't speak any melee besides perfunctory greetings, so conversation was out of the question. Still, there were opportunities to see unexpected connections. Somewhere in the fourth or fifth hour of our sequestration, seats shifted and an older melee couple in their 60s ended up across from us. The woman was robed head to toe in traditional garb, and the man in the loose pants and tight-fitting knit cap commonly worn by men from here to Indonesia. One thing caught my eye, though. His t-shirt was emblazoned with the Bitcoin logo, and in the cramped confines of the lounge, it was impossible not to see his phone. He was looking up crypto prices while waiting for his plane. The sun had long set by the time flights began to leave. Ours was not the first one out, and we had emailed our hotel in Kuala Lumpur to cancel our reservations. It was going to be a very long night now, even though planes were slowly beginning to gobble up the backlog of tired, angry passengers filling every square inch of the tiled floor between the pillars of the stark white departure lounge. In an effort to make peace with the grumbling mass of passengers, someone had the idea to placate the hungry mob with food as they boarded their flights. The chosen solution was a KFC-like fried chicken place called Mary Brown I had barely glanced at on my way in this morning. As we were finally hustled out of the doors, each passenger was handed a bottle of water and a chicken sandwich in white paper with the grease already soaking through. Then it was out past the bins of complimentary umbrellas and onto the rainy tarmac under the inky black sky. As we walked across the pavement in the spitting rain, I noticed they still had the stairs standing at the rear door of the plane. Our seats were way back in coach, and Devin motioned toward the empty ladder. Do you think we should go for the back? He asked. There is no way they will load from the tail of the plane too, I said. I can be a bit of a rule follower, and breaking out of line on an airport taxiway in Malaysia just seemed like it was going to start an incident. I just wanted this day to be over. Suddenly, right behind me, the line splintered. I had been dead wrong. Under the glaring ramp lights, a line of older women broke into a run for the back stairs. It looked like the world's most colorful prison break as they waddled across the wet pavement in their long, bright patterned skirts. It was too late to join them. Now there were two streams of people heading for opposite ends of the plane in the dying rain, and these two streams were headed for a collision. One would hope that the dissenters who had gone to the back stairs would be those who knew their seats were at the back of the plane. This was too much to ask. As I ducked out of the rain at the top of the front stairs, I looked down the tube of the plane into a scene of pure madness. Standing there holding my smashed fried chicken sandwich and sweaty water bottle, I could hardly believe what I was seeing. Two cross currents of people had met in the middle of the plane with predictable results. Anxious for overhead luggage space, everyone was simply throwing their bags into the first spot they could see and then hunting up where to sit. 
Those entering the back of the plane were headed toward the rows numbering in the teens, and we had to somehow get back to our seats in the late 20s. The cabin lights were already rigged for a night run, with only the electric blue accent lights on the sides adding an eerie glow to the scene. The steam bath night air was mixing with the freshly air-conditioned draft coming through the cabin vents, sending cascades of thick fog down the sides of the cabin that would have made any Hollywood special effects guru proud. Everywhere, people were handing luggage over each other and trying to squeeze by one another in the tiny aisle. It was sheer lunacy. We made it to within three rows of our seats before any forward movement became impossible. Taking a cue from everyone else, I sighed and chucked my carry-on into a random bin. Standing there, a head and a half taller than anyone around me, I was a lone island in the logjam swirling about the plane. Everyone was looking up, holding their bags hopefully at chest level, waiting to shove them into any bins that could hold them. With my bag stowed, I had a free hand. It was time to just embrace the chaos and join in. Nodding to the man in front of me, I motioned for his suitcase and hoisted it over the sea of waiting heads into the bin behind my bag. Out of the corner of my eye, it looked like Devin was doing the same. Next, I stowed a bag for a young mother with too few hands to care for her child passed out on her shoulder and find a place for her luggage at the same time. Piece by piece, I found homes for the suitcases and bags that were now being offered up by everyone in the aisle. Slowly, the traffic jam cleared, and now we could get down to the business of finding a place to sit. This was when the real horse trading began. AirAsia's policy, like that of many airlines, seemed to be to prevent tickets from being booked next to each other unless you paid extra for it. As a result, no one who was traveling together was sitting together. After a day of waiting, though, no one wanted to stand on such formality. To add to the chaos, many of the older passengers had simply given up and sat down wherever they pleased. People asked each other quickly with little bows if they could switch seats, offering up the water bottles or the poor chicken sandwiches as a kind of currency. By the time I finally took my seat, it wasn't even mine. I was in the young mother's seat, eating the old man's sandwich and drinking someone else's water. I had lost track of how it all happened, but it didn't matter. We were on our way to KL, so the rest was just details. What I did know is that there, in that hot, sweaty fuselage, we all felt like we were in this together. Welcome, weary smiles of quiet victory and relief flashed around the cabin as we finally trundled out onto the runway and the Airbus lumbered into the murky night sky. As we punched up into the cloud deck, I crumpled an empty water bottle into the seat pocket in front of me and eased back. One of the most beautiful things about traveling outside of the Western world is finally letting go. When the lunacy and the compounding unmet expectations finally build up high enough, there is nothing to do but shrug your shoulders and accept your fate with everyone else. Our fate would soon leave Devin and I sitting up through the night in yet another airport lounge at Kuala Lumpur International. The following day, we would stagger upstairs through customs and drop like dead men into our seats for a flight back into Thailand. When we finally oozed into our Bangkok hotel the next afternoon, we wouldn't much care about the egalitarian unity of mankind and shared suffering or the multinational accident that we as Americans were booked in a hotel built especially for Japanese salarymen in Thailand on business. 
The only things that mattered then would be clean sheets, separate bedrooms, and finally getting some sleep at last. This is Stand By for Paradise, a little show made by me, Jason Fleming. You can read the full text of each episode, as well as see pictures from these stories at standbyforparadise.com. If you like the show, please share it with someone. If you love the show, you can support it on Patreon. The link is in the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I will see you on the next episode.